1: Ladies and gentlemen, these episodes are brought to you by the supporters of the Segment Podcast. Big big thank you going out to the folks who believe in the podcast and help bring these episodes to you. Special thank you going out to Tasco MTB, YT Industries, SSB Spy Optics, Etney's MTB Shoes, and Six D Helmets. Senders, if you get a chance, take a look at the notes in the description below for discount codes and links to these awesome companies. And now, on to the show. Hey, senders. Welcome back to another episode of the Segment Podcast. This is episode 114, and have I got an amazing guest for you. She goes by the name of Christine Hurst Bernhardt, and she is an amazing person, an amazing writer, a talented professional on and off the bike, and we'll get into all that. I actually met Christine when we were doing a a session at a feature in Bentonville called Drop the Hammer. And I wanna show you what that looked like. This is Christine and her friend Heidi at Drop the Hammer right here. In Bentonville on the colder trails. And there is Heidi sailing over the top of Christine. We had so much epic footage of Christine sending it off of this thing as well. I think we had sessioned that for like an hour or more that day. And it was a ton of fun. But that's how I I met Christine. I got talking to her and uh, realized that she helped pave the way and make a space for women in downhill racing. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And I'd love to get her on the show. And then I found out that she, Is a professor at uh, at the universities. She is um, an award winner for the Thomas J. Brennan Award, and there's so much behind this person. And she's actually a med, There's all kinds of things. So basically, (laughs) without further ado, we're going to bring Christine on the show and get to know Miss Christine. Hey, hey, Christine.
0: Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. And I want to correct you on that. We were not there for an hour. I'm pretty sure. We were there for like three to four, and then we went up and hit the jump line.
1: <laughs> yes! Oh my gosh, that was so fun. That was such a fun time. I see That's that so a couple. Of, I see a couple people have uh, joined us. One of the folks that was with us, uh, dropping the hammer, was Brett Hall with Unspoken. He says, "Yeah, drop the hammer." That is awesome. He was out there with us. Trail pimp out of Northern California is saying hello. Hello, Christine. <laughs> we got Timothy Haley. He's saying, "Mark, what yeah, up? Hey, What's I'm up? North Cal. I did
0: my undergrad in NorCal. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, Christine is done, man. Christine. As I got to know you, the day we were dropping the hammer, and then we went up and we we sessioned uh, cease and desist. I think that was an epic trail. And um, I found mm-hmm. out that you lived many lives, <laughs> many lives, and did many things. Nice. But in Yes. And in the sport of mountain biking, take us back to this is like before there was Instagram, before there was influencers, you were helping pave a way for women in the sport of racing for mountain biking. And can you take us back to that time and what were you doing and and what did you do?
0: Yeah, yeah. so I just want to say that there were influencers, then it just looked a little different. This is back when there was Decline Magazine, you know, Scott Hart running Decline Magazine. And he would put Terry Yanez on the cover or, um, you know, Lee Donovan or Marla Streb. So those were my heroes. And that was who I looked up to. Um, I had a secret crush on Terry Yanez and I got to tell her <laughs> that after she broke her back and I got to carry her around Sea Otter. That oh was fun. Um You know, so those women were really in the heyday of, of downhill racing, you know, when there was money in it in the U S and it was on, um, it it was on ESPN and there were, there were mega, mega sponsors. Um, so that was where I, like, I kind of came in right at the end of that. Um, I started racing collegiate, uh, for HSU for Humboldt state. I think it's now Humboldt Polytechnic, um, Yep, Northstar was my very first downhill race. I think I laid down and cried a couple of times, but I still got up and, and won. Um, and I was like, this is so scary, but I really like it. <laughs> and, uh, and I just kind of stuck with it. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, I graduated college and I started racing. And, and back then there wasn't, um, there were different series. So it was Norba and we would race out a Big Bear. And um, super sketchy courses and the race promoters really hated downhillers. And I really loved being a part of the scene. That was kind of like we were snowboarders in the winter and mountain bikers in the summer. Nice. And we were really kind of like the outcasts of the scene. Um, but a challenge that I faced was I, I remember racing um, <laughs> dual slalom with Essence Barton, who is a badass. I love I, Essence and I. I've, I've known Essence since she was. At 11 she actually went to school with my sister we're from wow. the same town um and yes I do play piano I was actually a music major for a bit um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah so essence and I were racing dual slalom in Big Bear and because of the way the brackets are in slalom they you know they trim the field down so they start with all the men because it's obviously a bigger field and by the time they got to us there was only four, there was only four women. So they got to us. We'd been up there all day as they're trimming the brackets down. And they said, all right, guys, racing's over. And they turned off the lights and it's like nine what? o'clock at night. It started to snow and um, and they sent everyone away. And they're like, oh, head over to the pavilion for awards. And Essence and I are still sitting up there. We're like, we haven't raced yet.
1: Yeah, Oh, <laughs> we had,
0: like, our parents are down there. They're like, what the hell? <laughs> and um, So I mean, we had a race in the dark. And um, a couple years later, I remember winning the national title and because they made the women go last, they gave away the small jerseys. So they gave me like this massive, like nightgown of a jersey. And, you know, there was just stuff that was happening like that all the time where it was like the women were last. We were so deprioritized. We would have to race after the kids. And at that point, you know, you'd be up at the top, you know, and seating for downhill. It's like, Usually they'll put the fastest people first and, and they would just, even when I turned pro often, the pro women would race bef- after the kids, you'd be up there forever and wow. you would get down and you know, they'd have course holds and the course would be so chewed up and, and it was just so frustrating. And, um, then when I was in Southern California, I started making some connections with like azonic and they wanted to put me in, um in their their women's gear but back then there was really this mantra of just shrink it and pink it so um i remember having these knee pads that were the kids knee pads that were pink and i'm pretty small um i'm like barely five feet tall so these knee pads and shin guards like went into my shoes Oh. so I would have to cut my knee pads and I couldn't find helmets that fit me. And I had a helmet sponsor who will remain nameless that told me to put a beanie under my helmet. So it would fit me. No, you know, I can't. Cons- yeah. Which is, which is from a scientific standpoint, that can actually make you have a secondary concussion. That's terrible advice. Yeah. Um, so just nothing, there was just nothing for us. It was like, we didn't have a space in the scene. We didn't have gear that fit us. We didn't have bikes that fit us. And I just saw this just like all of these amazing women that were out there funding it themselves and no place for us and a place feeling like we weren't even really wanted. Um, and I just kind of saw this way that I could change that. So I was, I think I, I had been teaching for one year. I had a one-year-old, I was poor um, and I taught summer school to be able to start a team to buy all the stuff myself. So um initially, even our sponsors, it was like a pro deal. Um it took a bit to get start getting um start getting better than pro deals to actually getting things free. Um you know and even you know some of the things we had to pay for it was it was just kind of crazy. You know, we we had to pay for everything. Um, I had at one point um besides Melissa Buell and Jill Kittner, I had the fastest women in the country on my team. Um, I had Darian Harvey, who was representing the US for UCI. Um, she was national champion. I had um I had uh Joy Martin, who has um Joy Bright Martin, she she's won a ton of Enduro stuff. She's beat some really fast girls. Um I had Jen Wolf, who didn't race for very long, but she was a badass. Um I had Tasa Herndon, who is just a really good time and a really cool rider. She's from North Star. Anyone North Star knows Tasa. And then I had Jackie Harmony. And Jackie Harmony and, um, and Lisa Miklach were some of the very first girls hitting mega jumps, like 45 foot gaps. Um, you know, so I, all of these amazing women and, you know, the, the hustle that I had to do to get these women things um, w- was just crazy. And the men didn't have to do that. Um, so it just became my goal to just, be able to make it easier, at least for these women, so that maybe in the future, other women wouldn't have to hustle that way, you know, that they could just go ride their bikes, like some of the men were doing, you know, they could just show up. And, you know, I remember one race, um, sitting in the gate, and Melissa was there, Melissa Buell is a good friend of mine. And um, there was like Melissa, there was Nevin Steinmetz, um, who has a PhD in chemistry. Um, there was another girl, Lauren, who was retired as PhD in marine biology. Um, Melissa, who's a doctor. Um, and, you know, I, and Joy is an engineer and it, all of us are in the gate. And I'm just like, PhD, 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 engineer, little old me. Um, and then you looked over at the men's gate, the men's pro start. It's like high school dropout, high school dropout, high school dropout. But they were all getting it free. You know, and we're having to work our asses off, you know, and train at 5 a.m. And they didn't have to work. Um crazy. It just, it such an inequity. Um, and don't even get me started on what the purses were. I got checks for two dollars.
1: <laughs> no way, like the paper is worth more sometimes than the actual. Purse.
0: I'm not even going to take that to the bank. Thank
1: you. Jeez, my gosh. No, was the discrepancy because obviously that was like that's a big awakening, you know, for the MTB profession for the for the whole industry. Was it was it was like the old good old boys club back then? Or were women just getting started? And, and, I mean,
0: how did did we get there? Yeah, you know, I think we were just so outnumbered. because women have been doing this just as long as men have been, you know, like, I mean, Marla Streb was racing, uh, you know, a hard tail with like a two inch fork and she was racing all over the world in that,
1: Good um, grief.
0: you know, oh there, God. there was just less. And I think there's just this systemic mentality that women can't do a lot of the things that men can do, that women aren't as fast, that women aren't as strong, you know, women are less publicizable. Um, you know, and there's so many women out there now, like my friend CJ Sellig, who is, you know, I remember when she first started jumping, like, I think I posted a picture today of us at the, at the pump track together or a day. She was there if she's not in the picture. And I remember her just starting to jump and now she's just killing it. Like there are women doing things that, that the men are doing too. And, but, it, but it just seems like we consistently have to prove ourselves and fight our way up. Um, and I don't feel like there's the same gatekeeping for men. Um, and you know, and there there's, there's a lot more opportunity now, you know, I feel like it was kind of like the dark ages, you know, even 15 years ago. Um, so it has come a long way, but you know, we're making some back steps too. Like there was a time when every bike manufacturer had a woman's bike. And if you're small like me, that makes a big difference because my, I'm going to get nerdy on you. My center of mass is different than your center of mass. So my center of mass is lower. So for me to have a shorter rear triangle and a slightly lower bottom bracket and a more slacked out head angle, that makes a much bigger difference for me than someone who's six feet tall because your center of mass is going to be like a foot and a half higher. It's going to be in your shoulders. Mine's in my hips. So when I'm on a bike that's built for me, There's not many dudes that can beat me down something super steep because it's built for my center of mass and I don't have to move my body as much to get in the position to slingshot that. Um, But now there's only one bike manufacturer that's doing that and that's live. And they were the first and now they're the last because the bike manufacturers didn't think that we were worth it. And that's a shame
1: Wow. Shout out to Liv for stepping up to the plate. Now, going back to the time that you saw this discrepancy and you decided to help pave a way for other women, which you did, which was amazing. What did you call that team?
0: They were Vixen Racing. And there is a European team now that has the name. I passed it along. So if you look them up, they're probably the ones that are going to come up that that will come up on the search engine. But, um, you know, I wanted us to have a name that was feminine but fierce. And um, and I thought Vixen really encompassed that. And I, my goal was for us to not be naked and not make our way that way, and to not wear pink. And we never did either. We were purple, (laughs) but we didn't wear pink. No freaking pink. Yes,
1: screw that pink. (laughs) Dang, Christine, that is cool. And and for your pedigree, uh, two-time national expert champion in downhill, uh, three-time pro California. Uh, downhill champion, and and you helped pave the way for writers, like you were naming some writers, but uh, some of the writers who followed after you, who were some of the folks that you helped kind of pave the path for?
0: Oh, gosh. I, I don't think that I did anything. I think I was just loud and proud and maybe, like, cleared a path, um, but... Uh... One thing that I helped get off the ground um, in in terms of coaching was an organization in Southern California called Girls Gone Riding. And um, someone approached me wanting to get more women in the sport, asked me to be the coach. Lee Donovan's now the coach of that. Um, And she and I have coached a bunch of things together for that. And um, they now have like hundreds of women, if not thousands of women in multiple different chapters. And that's single handedly gotten so many more women involved. Like if you go to anywhere in Southern California and you see women riding, they're probably a part of that group. That's probably how they started. So I'd like to think I had something to do with that. Um, I used to wear a little bit of bling when I would ride. And I think that, um, that helped normalize that you could be feminine and ride. Like I used to actually ride with pearls and like, I bedazzled my shoes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: and, like, Rachel Troop came up to me and said, uh, straight, sorry, um, mentioned that to me, I think, when we first started racing together. Um, but, you know, it's, it's been really neat to see, like, kind of it's like, my racing era has ended, which is partly due to injury and partly because I really like school and I just keep going. Um but seeing girls like uh, like Amy Morrison, um, is just crushing it. And she's a fellow science teacher, so I love that, of course. But I remember like when she first started riding in um, her first race, and um, you know she's just come so far. So you know, I definitely didn't have anything to do with that, but it was cool to be a part of her journey. Um, so so that was really neat. And uh, you know, I think I just I knew. A lot of people in in the industry, and um, if you ever see a, a purple Cove Shocker, those were our bikes. There's still a few floating around Bootleg Canyon, and um, Man. I think there's one in Angel Fire. Those those were the Vixen bikes, like they made them custom for us.
1: That you like awesome. pink stuff? Yeah, um, you, you would
0: like pink stuff, <laughs> <laughs> right? And
1: dirty? What's up, brother? He says I like pink stuff. Yeah, yeah. he he does.
0: <laughs>
1: purple stuff is dope too. I mean, purple's the color of. um, uh, why is it escaping right now? But purple is the color of, um, royalty. So uh, there you go. There you go. And now, now you have like people like Rachel straight, you know, coming up behind you guys. And I know that you don't want to take a lot of the credit for helping pave the way, but definitely you put a spot in there and created some noise in order for people to pay more attention to this division. And now looking at it today, I mean, there is a lot more going on for women, which is awesome. A lot of clothing brands I see are putting out things. I know Zoic is doing some things. Um, mm-hmm. Tesco is doing some things. Darko, um, yeah. Darko. I, I feel like
0: most of the clothing manufacturers now have a woman's line. I mean, it only took how long for them to realize, like, we have body parts y'all don't have. Yeah, and we're shaped a little <laughs> bit differently. Like, we got boobs and we have booty and, like, you know. <laughs> and i see in the chat someone asked if i'm in nova mtb yes i relocated to the dc area
1: yeah we had a question here from robert he says aren't you in 703 now nova mtb
0: yeah yeah that's kind
1: of that's kind of moving into out of biking now into your into what you're doing today i mean obviously you're still on the bike you're Mm -hmm. still rip i mean i think the first glimpse i caught of you was when eric and i were at drop the hammer and I just see this like long blonde hair, like whiz by me with your, with your writer, Heidi, behind you. You're sticking out your tongue and having a blast and you were just dropping the hammer over and over again. And I think at one point you were speaking Spanish to people too. I'm like, was that wait. that blonde hair girl that was speaking Spanish?
0: <laughs>
1: and, um, yeah, which is, which was cool. And then I started talking to you and you were like, STEM is my jam. I'm like, wait, what? STEM is your jam. And you're like, yeah, I teach astronomy. I'm like, what the heck? So how have you always had the love? Obviously you've had the love for mountain biking, created this uh, wonderful space for women, Vixen Racing, that great team. And then now you're you're your professor.
0: Mm -hmm. I am. How did you make that transition? was just hired um, at a new university. So I am now like kind of making the transition to academia. Um, I am now a professor at um, University of Maryland Global Campus.
1: Oh, Trail um, <laughs> oh, <dang. laughs>
0: monster. Oh, I see. another see. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I've taught high school STEM for 16 years, I think, but before that, um, I was, I came out of Northern California and I was really like a hippie mountain biker, backpacker, and I taught outdoor school and, um, really loved it, but, um, made the transition to classroom and just really loved teaching kids about science as a way to understand our world. Um, and, oh, there I am. (laughs) And, um, space was my first love, but, um, I didn't think that I could do it. I didn't see any women represented in, I didn't know that space was actually something you could do as a job besides being an astronaut. And, um, I didn't see any female scientists. I didn't have any representation of that. I didn't have any female science teachers. Um, so I kind of went a roundabout way of that. I was a music major first and I got to teach astronomy and I just, I actually was taking classes with it as I was teaching it and just learning more and more. And, um, I really wanted to make it just the coolest class ever. So I enrolled in a master's degree in planetary science and all the science I was doing, I had my students do. So they ended up launching high altitude balloons. They captured stratospheric microorganisms. We launched tardigrades a couple times. We captured cosmic dust, not we, they, yeah. um, they did but just you with the them? Cool- yeah. Well, I just gave them the space. I just kind <laughs> of, the way. Um, I
1: see what you did there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all the puns. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I just created this space where they could um, do science, like real science, no textbook, no curriculum, um, just like what, if you sent something to space, what conditions would cause it to change? And if you understand those conditions, what could you send up that could change? And how do you think it's going to change? So the whole course was built around these experiments. Um, and then, um, yeah, I wrote a paper. Um, so, Last year, um, I, I applied actually during the pandemic to both PhD programs and um, a program called the Einstein Fellowship. And the Einstein Fellowship takes the nation's top STEM educators and places them in either federal agencies like Department of Defense, cybersecurity, NASA, um, or, uh, or a couple of people are placed in congressional offices. I don't know what they were thinking putting me in a congressional office, um, but that's where I was. Um, and I got to spend that time really diving into policy and I wrote this paper and I was actually in a podcast about that a week ago. Um, and, uh, that was really neat. And it was, uh, really an opportunity to dive into what sort of education our students are getting, because I knew my little microcosm, but young students are getting something very different. And, um, I, I really changed a lot of my focus to try and bring quality experiences that don't have to involve a textbook. I think we get it all wrong. Um, You know, there's so much science that you can just get outside and we need to be able to bridge that gap. So that's one of the reasons I'm getting my PhD is um, people listen to you when you have those letters. And um, I really wanna be able to bring better science to teachers that are already really good teachers and validate what they're already doing. Because we have a lot of systems in place that tell teachers right now, especially coming out of the pandemic, that everything they're doing is wrong, that students are so far behind and oh my God. And the only way to fix it is to buy more textbooks and do more tests. And um, I, I think that we are going to end up in a really bad situation with that. So um, but yeah, and I'm also an astronomer. That's one of my other lives. So um, I was just at an earth and space conference the last couple of days and I lead a ton of outreach um, and I'm an astronomy professor in my other role, um, in addition to being a teacher. So, um, I teach now at three colleges, um, mm, brief. yeah. And, uh, those are like my side gigs. Um, and the one I was just hired at, I think that one might end up being full-time, but I'm not sure. Um, and then I, have taught space camps, um, in Hong Kong and I did space lessons in Slovakia last year. Um, yeah, that's my, my research project. I just did an international study in astronomy education with 10 countries. Um, and that was really neat to just look at like how they're bringing, um, I think that conference was Toronto. That was in May, um, right before I met you, um, looking at how countries are doing things like putting telescopes in, um, communities, in community centers in Mexico and in Nigeria and using astronomy to bridge gender gaps in schools and, um, oh, the margaritas. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Those are amazing teachers, one from Nigeria, one from um, Japan. Um, They're both involved in my research study and they're just doing incredible things to bring STEM to their communities, to teachers, to students um, outside of school um, and through the lens of of astronomy. So uh, really, really neat. Wow. that's so, cool yeah, that, was, that was a cool experience toronto is a cool and weird town too by the way <laughs> yeah
1: it's kind of like the old meets the new there right yeah all, yeah that architecture so, you
0: know that's it's allowed me to kind of travel all over the place i'm going to a conference in greece um in uh in the beaches of greece in august to present that conference as well or to present wow. that research Man. and um yeah i kind of try and merge my professional interests with my travel interests so um like conference in Greece. I can I can get on board in that, applied, get accepted. And um yeah, it's it's been really neat. I got to teach in Hong Kong and um went all over Southeast Asia and uh yeah, it's been awesome. Oh, I see that is from Bentonville. Really awesome.
1: Oh yeah, we got Lisa Blount on here. She's saying, I Hello can, from I just watched the video of you all dropping the hammer. Awesome. I'm enjoying hearing about Christine's journey. And her fight for women's mountain biking heck yeah <laughs> welcome aboard lisa appreciate you being here thank you so you're catching so much air on the bike that you decided to go to astronomy and study more of the air through the stratosphere all the way <laughs> up through have you now you have always had this affinity to to the the stars the sky the whole thing and then i was reading on your paper that you published. Another big push and another gap that you found, just like the gap that we saw in early mountain bike competition, you saw a gap for STEM and science, quality science for elementary school kids.
0: Yeah. Um, So that was partly during the pandemic. Um, I had the uh, challenge of homeschooling my own child, Um, and he was fortunate enough to have a science teacher as a parent. Um, so a lot of the things that we were doing, I was just like, let's, let's not do it on the computer. Let's actually build a stream table. And that's, you know, he already knew that the way we crush cans in our home is by, you know, making a vacuum and putting it in cold water. So there were a lot of things that he already like had access to and knew, but seeing the caliber that they were getting in his teacher was fantastic. But I just couldn't believe that level of like what they reduced science to. Um, It was sad. I was like, God, no wonder we'd have kids that don't want to go into this. You made it so boring (laughs) to (laughs) be that way. And, you know, when I was on the Hill last year, I got the opportunity to work with um, another fellow who was really passionate about this. And we got to work with the National Academy of Sciences. And they put out a report um, highlighting the big gaps. And 60 percent of students don't get any science until sixth grade or seventh grade. And of the ones that do get it, it's less than an hour a week, and that's that's really big when when they get three to four hours a day of English and reading or reading and math, um, and you know that's that's a problem. You know when we talk about this the workforce, the STEM workforce, and there's all these policy pushes to diversify, but they're all aimed at college or you know, young adults return to work. And all the research tells us that if you don't get kids by the time they're like eight or nine, and just like if you think about a language, you're never gonna turn them on to a subject. But the irony is that because kids are natural scientists, that's why a lot of the science was removed is because Someone somewhere thought that it was, you know, a good idea, since they naturally are curious and kids naturally notice patterns. That it's okay if we just leave science until later. Let's just, you know, drill and kill the reading and the writing and the math. That
1: that Um, sounds very backwards, right? Right? Crazy.
0: And if we look at other countries, they're not doing it that way. So, so yeah. So I've I've spent a lot of time looking at that, speaking about that, and um, you know, just as a as a way of of humanizing. Um, school. Like, I, I think that we've just really missed the mark on a lot of things coming out of the pandemic. And um, that's something I'd really like to change. Oh, that was at Space Center Houston. That's a conference I get to go to every year, which wow. is awesome. That's an amazing astronaut down in front. That is, which astronaut is that? Oh, I can't tell.
1: That oh, is, like let's see if you have it listed here. I
0: uh, know I do. I'm trying to remember if that was this year. He's also a Spanish speaker. And he, I think he was actually a teacher first. Um, And his name is escaping me. Wow. I apologize. I suffer from the effects of long COVID. I at least blame that for when I. (laughs) 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 No,
1: I mean, you've done a lot. And now when, when you're kind of like pushing those boundaries, like you say here in, in this, or someone says here in this, in this post, pushing the boundaries for science in elementary school are you making any headway or is or are they still so bent on doing it later on for these kids
0: best thing about conferences is the parties by the way (laughs) Um,
1: different countries
0: there are conversations that are happening and there's research that is happening but um like a lot of things it's like moving a glacier and um it's you know there there's there's a lot of challenges. Um, so there's a lot of people talking about it, and it's on a lot of people's radar. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, just like in in mountain biking. You know, you think about like Bentonville, where I just came from, right? Yes. Oh you had someone gosh. that moved in that brought in a ton of money that just poured into developing infrastructure and systems to support that infrastructure. And stems the same way. So you know, we just really need that big investment. So my big push is like, you know, even in talking about space, like space isn't just about discovering distant galaxies and dark matter. It's being able to explain our relationship with the world around us, you know, atmospheres, Mm. the hydrosphere. It's not just about like cosmology. You know, I study planetary science. So I look at planetary surfaces and turns out we live on one. And, um, (laughs) you know, it's not about producing a world of astronomers or a world of engineers, that would be a really boring place. Um I can't imagine having a world of that. But we have to have people that can explain the world around them and read a graph and interpret data and um, understand fiction from fact. And you know that those are just the the skills of scientific literacy. Um, so that's that's the the headway that I'm trying to make and um, trying to convince people to that we don't need a, a textbook or curriculum necessarily to do that. And yeah, that that picture, that was really cool. I got to fly aboard a NASA mission called the SOFIA mission that was just decommissioned. Um, that is a, a gutted 747 special plane um, that uh, has a telescope on it now in the back. And it's an infrared telescope. And um, a lot of that, the infrared field is now covered by James Webb. So that was sunsetted, wow. I believe in December, um, and they had an incredible program um, that took teachers on board. So I got to fly on that. It was amazing.
1: Wow. that You've got oh, to do so many great things. And so, Nick,
0: that is a, a very large question, my friend.
1: <laughs> Nick is saying, Christina, do you believe there is life on other planets?
0: Oh, gosh. How much time do you have? Um, yes,
1: we have time. <laughs> I, well,
0: let's see. That's a very loaded question. I always tell my students I will not answer that until the very last day of the semester because it takes them way off track. Um, (laughs) So uh, there's a lot to that one. Um, There are two camps in the field of space that there is and there isn't. And they both have repercussions. Either we're alone in the universe and it's a lonely place or we're not. And both of those have serious implications for us as a species. So, and they're both kind of equally terrifying um, when you consider that, either that we're completely alone or that we're not. But the crazy thing is, is if we think about humanity, humanity as a technological species is very young. So um, when we're looking for life other places, it may not be technological, but if it is, it means that maybe technological species have a finite lifetime. And the way that we look for that is not just like, you know, biological signals, but um, radio signals. And, um, you know, if we think about us as a technological species, it's probably what, a hundred years, 50 years. Yeah, But yeah, we're super young, but we can only see as far as light travels. So, you know, when I'm looking at you, I'm seeing you as you were, you know, a millisecond ago. Um, So if you think about like lightning and thunder, you see lightning before you hear thunder, because light travels faster than sound. So in terms of space, we can only see, if you think about like how far out we see, that's like looking back in time. So our closest star is four and a half light years away. So we're seeing it four and a half years ago Jeez. and our next closest stars. And that's, that's like our next closest star system, but our next closest planetary system is like 75 light years away. So we're seeing that as it was 75 years ago. Well, us, 75 years ago, we were still testing atomic bombs above right. ground. So that yeah. means they're seeing us then too. And, um, you know, how they see us is going to influence how they would interact with us. You know, would right. they be, see us as peaceful? Would they see us as warring? Um, uh, those you know, crazy we don't really, people down you know, there. We don't have a very good track record. <laughs> right. um, you know, we don't have a very good track record of, of uh, coming into contact with, with other groups of people, let alone... Other um, you know, organisms. Uh so
1: somehow we got Thanksgiving out on of one of them. How do we do that? <laughs> How do we pull that off?
0: Oh man, whole other can of worms. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so you know, we're we're looking, we know that life on Earth started and stopped many times, and life happens when you have the right ingredients, life explodes. It's happened on earth. We've had six or seven mass extinctions, and every time life has restarted again. So everywhere on earth where there's the right ingredients, including geothermal vents, um, you know, the tops of volcanoes, um, uh, nuclear reactors, anywhere where there's the ingredients for life, life happens. We have extremophiles here. So life happens easily and everywhere where you have the ingredients. So if a place has the ingredients, sure, but we haven't found it. And, um, you know, if it does, it's probably, going to be very single-celled organisms. And there's also a lot of criteria you have to have to have those ingredients. And some estimates are that we are the anomaly. Whoa, so that but,
1: sounds so scary yeah, if we were.
0: That would be kind of crazy if we were. Right. But another line of thought is that, um, you know, we have, we, we see shooting stars all the time. They're not shooting stars, they're meteors, by the way, but they're, they're space debris that are falling in. And we found... Um, debris from Mars. We found debris from the moon. You can look up at the moon and see craters. You know, the Mars has been hit by impacts and the early solar system had a lot of impacts. So earth was hit by an impact. That's how we got the moon. Um, so we know that there was a lot of like impacts early on. And it's very possible that a life-bearing planet was impacted and those ingredients were carried to earth. And if you think about that Original parent body being Mars, and that material being carried here, that would make us Martians.
1: That would make us the aliens. Yeah, exactly. Whoa, that's (laughs) crazy. That that hurts my head, (laughs) but it makes (laughs) sense. We're we're children of stardust (laughs) that that came down here. Now, like, I have like very novice questions because I am, but I'm a student with all this stuff if the did the moon is it theorized that the moon was actually part of earth or was the moon something that hit us
0: kind of okay so earth was hit by a very large like planet size like probably mars size impact it was called gaia and it hit earth when earth was still molten and part of it spun off and became our moon oh my gosh okay both of those are correct
1: holy cow in the thought that this has started and stopped like multiple times, if, if an impact were to hit today and wipe us all out, how long would it take for us to be able to have this live stream again? How many thousands mm. of years could that be?
0: You know, I don't know. I know in geologic time, it's really fast. Um, and there are some species that are really resistant to it, like turtles. Turtles have survived multiple, maybe it must be their shells um, and crocodiles. Um, they are largely unchanged. Birds are, you know, direct descendants of dinosaurs. Um, so we think it's pretty quick, you know, especially like wow. you know, biota in, in the oceans, um, that that it starts again really fast um, wow. because life wants to happen. So wow. if there was a space that had the right ingredients, life would, you know, it seems as though systems lend themselves to life, but. That being said, to answer your question, I happen to think that we're alone. I wow. think that we're the an anomaly.
1: Really? In this zone of the universe or the entire universe? Because it's so vast and it's huge.
0: Crazy. I know. Um, there's actually an equation. If you really want to get into it, then I'm not the going to get into The Drake equation? It. Yes, the Drake equation. Oh, exactly. Okay. Um, and if, if you... If It all depends on how many, what the lifetime of a technological civilization is and how many there are. And if those numbers are very low, then statistically, it couldn't happen more than once. Um, Where do I find the time to mountain bike? I get that question a lot, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Early mornings, I ride. Um, When I was in Southern California, I rode a lot at like 5 a.m., now I I ride my, in D.C., the riding is, sorry if someone else is in Nova here, but it's not, it's not, it's not Bentonville. We'll say that. <laughs> <It's pretty laughs> um,
1: politically. Yeah. Correct about you it. Know,
0: now I have to drive to ride, which kind of stinks. So I can only ride a couple of days a week. So I am, there's Washington, D.C. And if you go just to the left of that, where that little green spot is, there's the Pentagon. I live right by the Pentagon.
1: Oh, wow. Dang.
0: Oh, that was Arlington National Cemetery. So it's, it's just below the green space. So all that green, that's Arlington Cemetery, and I'm in Arlington.
1: Okay, okay. But if
0: you zoom way out, the best riding is like northern Maryland called the Shed. Um, it's like way up there to the top of your screen. That was further up. But when I first moved here, I remember posting on this Facebook page, um, Hey, you know, I heard that the shed is really good downhill. I'd really like to go. Is there anyone that could show me around? And someone posted on the page, they were like, um, so since you're new, you should probably find a guide who who's really good with beginners. <laughs> oh,
1: geez. What an assumption that was, right? <laughs> and,
0: uh, that happened a couple of times. It's like, wow, I guess this is what I, what I'm facing being in a new spot. Um, but yeah, there's that, that spot. The watershed is about an hour and a half from me. There's some, some local things, but it's, uh, it's taken me a bit to get used to riding in trees and roots. I'm not as used to that. Um, so yeah, like way up there, there's riding, there's a couple bike parks within a couple hours. Um, I haven't been to snowshoe yet, but I want to, that one's like four hours away. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do. I ride a lot of road here, um, on a gravel bike so that I don't have to be limited to the pavement. Um, I do a lot of gym. Um, I really like to be really strong. And after my third knee surgery, I couldn't ride. I've now had five. Um, but after my third, I, um, I just hit the gym a ton. I got super into CrossFit. And, um, so now I kind of try and balance the riding and the gymming.
1: Yeah. As a, as a female rider, is it harder? Obviously you're like Lisa's asking, when do you have the time to ride, and your day is packed. You know, with yeah. you've got you're a family, you're a family woman. You got the kiddos, uh, you got the hubby, you got the job. And if you're riding in the morning, something that maybe us guys don't think about, like I can go in the dark, early in the morning by myself and and feel fine. But is that different for for a female?
0: Um. I've only had a couple instances where I've been like legitimately scared. I'd like to think that I'm a badass and I'm, I'm fine, but the, um, I, on the mountain bike, I actually ride with my dogs. Um, I have a anaphylaxis bee allergy and we are training, um, my two dogs, one to get me help and one to stay with me. So I, I, I've got like 30 minutes and I'm going to die. So that's kind of always more at the front of my mind than people. Um, but that saying, that said, I did have a super scary encounter with like a crazy dude. And I was actually with my dogs and he was telling me he was going to kill my dog. I had to call the police, um, what
1: but the riding
0: in the morning out here, not so much actually, because there's so many bike commuters in the DC area. There's so many professionals and so many people that, that ride bikes. And actually it is such a bike friendly place you actually don't need a car. So last year going to Capitol Hill, going to the capital of the United States, I rode my bike. Um, I would go, I would bring high heels in my backpack and (laughs) go to like receptions and, and go to things like, you know, I, I just, I would keep like a little travel curling iron in my, my desk. And, um, you know, I could freshen up when I, when I got there. Um, it was definitely a transformation, but, uh, there's, there's so many people here that do it. Um, that I think the bigger thing is like making sure your bike is locked and you don't leave things like your garment or your helmet on your bike. Cause people steal it.
1: At least yeah. not your helmet, your helmet. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. No. You definitely got to like
0: bring it with you.
1: Oh my um, gosh.
0: <laughs> and it's, it's taken me a long time to feel comfortable like locking my bike up here. Cause my gravel bike is, it's a really expensive bike. So I would like actually bring it into the Capitol and, um, <laughs> And yeah, that's that's the US Capitol. So I worked in the Longworth building right across from that. Um, that was my very last day. And coincidentally, on that ride home, I tore my meniscus for the fifth time.
1: No kidding.
0: Yeah. So I was Whoa. not wearing clip shoes and I went to pedal and my foot kind of slipped and I wasn't in the right gear. And I just like pushed down too hard, and that was surgery number five. That was a wrap on <laughs>
1: that. Oh, oh my gosh. And and that was now the other injuries from the knee. Those were all from the racing days or were they, mm-hmm. were they not even in races?
0: Uh, mostly from races. So the first one is I was riding bootleg Canyon and I just went to plan a foot and um, my leg. I don't even remember what surgery that one was. I had that tattoo. So that was at least, I think that was number four or five. Ooh. Yeah. I don't even know. I had two in this house. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that one was just a foot plant. Um, second one was also in bootleg Canyon. Um, I was at a Gene Hamilton clinic. He did an all women's clinic, uh, downhill clinic, which was awesome. And then I ended up being able to coach for him afterwards, which was really cool. But we were doing, um, long, fast manuals down the road in Boot bootleg Canyon, if you've ever been there and I was clipped in and I knew I was, I was looping it. So I went to grab my brakes and I was, I was looping back over and I just unclipped a second too late and put my foot down, and I was probably going 40 miles an hour in this manual. Oh. So I went over, and um, my ACL popped, and it popped so loud that the girls around me all thought that a bomb went off. Like everyone heard it. Wow. Um, but at that hey, point, man. I had already done it, um, so I knew that I wasn't going to hurt it more. So I duct taped it, and I Stop kept it. writing.
1: you're you're a beast christine holy crap oh i actually like i
0: called the surgeon within like 30 minutes and um i was like hey you know if i keep riding am i gonna injure it any worse and he was like nope you know the drill you've already blown an acl once it's blown it's blown i had surgery scheduled a month later it was right before sea otter so (laughs) i remember i went to sea otter on crutches and mikey hatterer and one of his buddies were like having to carry me by the belt loops like into you know, up and down the stairs of Monterey, because I was very, very gimpy. Um, but that was that was number two. Number three was a redo. And that was a soccer injury that like officially did it. And then four and five were just meniscus. And those were riding.
1: Good Lord. Good Lord. That's a lot to unpack right there with the, with the <laughs> knee injuries. And you're still sending it like crazy. Like, it, it's amazing. And, and I feel like the biggest thing for you was, was just the anaphylaxis to the bee when totally that's
0: the one that like almost took me out, you know, and, but there's a lot of other injuries I've never had. Like, I feel like everyone else has done the collarbone and I was a gymnast. So I am the master of the tuck and roll like somewhere lives a video of me not quite making something in angel fire. And I did this tuck and roll and popped like right back up. Um, <laughs> I never <laughs> crashed with my hands out because I, I know to just
1: tuck know. and roll. Tuck and so roll. no no collarbone club for Christine. Knock on Dang. Dang right 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 right.
0: No. Tuck and roll master. <laughs> no wrists, no. Um, actually, I do have two shoulder injuries right now, but it's from the gym, not riding, unfortunately. God. <laughs> yep. Yeah, see, yeah. Lisa, you even said collarbone for her. Yeah. My um, Heidi, who I was riding with in Bentonville, she's done her collarbone a couple times. My girlfriend Joy has done her so many times, she's had to have the bone removed um, from her wrist and put in collarbone. I know a lot of mountain bikers that have had that.
1: Yeah. That's a full on collarbone club. That's one. Yeah, I, I don't want to join that club either. Cause it does not look fun. It it looks super painful. Yeah. And yeah. Oh my gosh. So how did you find out that you were severely, severely allergic to bees? <laughs>
0: um, well, my airway closed. <laughs> um, I was in, in college, I was backpacking with my college dog, and my dog disturbed a hive, um, and I was stung 14 times by bald-faced hornets, which those, it, it's what? like getting hit with a hammer. Um, oh, and my dog drugged me off the trail um, to my car, but I was two hours away, and this was kind of the early days of cell phones, but I was able to call the hospital, they were ready for me. And they kept me on the phone. I think my college boyfriend at the time, like, kept me on the phone. Um, But by the time I got there, my body was so, I was like a turtle. Um, My back was so f- full of hives. The hives are usually kind of small, but my hives were, like, this big. Um, I had them on my head, and my hair was falling out. And it's, so it, they couldn't believe I made it that long, just on sheer stubborn will, because I'm extremely stubborn. I was like, I am not. <laughs> so, um, so I made it and I i lost like two dates. Like I threw up everywhere, passed out, blacked out. Um they were like, we have never seen anyone have this bad of a reaction and live. And I had like streaking up my arm to my lymph node. And then I was stung again three days later. What? Um Yeah, so I've just had enough of those. And then just a couple years ago was stung. I hadn't been stung in a while. So I had gotten sloppy, wasn't carrying my Epi and um I had just done like my motorcycle certification or something and had just gotten married um, literally like um, two weeks before. And we were riding in Mount Pinos in, um, in Southern California and I had him shuttle me. And I usually do this alone. I go up, I ride up the mountain alone, go down alone. And I was trying to be a good wife and I was like, hey, why shuttle me. <laughs> <laughs> you shuttle me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um and well, I don't have to pedal down the hill with you. <laughs> right? I know I'm
0: Like you can, you can be a part of it. You can pick me up and drive me up and the trail like crosses the the road a couple times. And the, and so I was like, here's the spots you check in. And the first check-in I was fine. And in the second one, a bee, um, and I have to watch it. Like, even um like I was telling you when we were riding, uh, I have to think about the colors I wear and a lot of the women's jerseys are V-necks and I can't wear those. Cause that's how it got in. And it stung me on the heart. And, um, and I got to the next trail crossing and I threw the bike on the back of his car and I was so thankful he was actually there. And if I'd have missed that, I would have had to ride nine miles down and I probably wouldn't have made it. Oh um, and being God. the scientist I am, I was taking my heart rate and um, I immediately felt my ear hurt really bad. And I was like, oh, it must be because we're at altitude and it just kept getting worse. It was like this pounding in my pressure? ear, I, I guess. Um, but it was the beginnings of my airway closing. And we got down and I remembered that um, my students had launched a high altitude balloon from this fire station. So I remembered there was a fire station. So I kind of directed him to the fire station. But before we got there, um, I felt like a Kardashian. It was like my lips went mm-hmm, and they oh. just, it was like, and all of a sudden I couldn't talk. I couldn't breathe. So we got there and I I was wheezing. I was throwing up like, uh, um, and and when your airway closes, you can't, you can't talk. Like it's like your, your tongue is too big for your mouth. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy feeling. Um, so that was, that was 2019 and then the next summer I was stung again. So I'm convinced that when you're allergic and you've been stung a lot, the bees smell the venom in you. Um, so in Southern California, there was a spot I would ride and they would put out bee boxes. So everyone knew to tell me like, Oh, the boxes are out. So I couldn't go up there. Um, so, and that's, you know, it's just kind of a, a fact of my life. Like I can't ride where there's no service um, as much as I would like to, cause that's my style. Um, I, I always have to let people know where I am. I have to carry two Eppies with me at all times. Um, I have Eppies Enjoy. in my purse, Eppies in my car, Eppies in my riding bag. Um, I now have a specialized that has a little compartment, but I'm hesitant to stick it in there. Cause so I don't know if it'll get too hot. Um, my kids, like everyone is trained in how to do it. Um, so yeah it's yeah and anytime i ride with someone new i have to show them like it's a process but you yeah know.
1: when we were climbing up on kohler we were climbing up to the top to the hub i remember heidi telling me because you and i were breaking off um yeah you know briefly from this from the group and she said hey if she gets stung by a bee, it's an epi and then some benadryl and then epi yep. number two and i was like thinking to myself two epi yeah. oh my gosh i didn't want to leave you out of my sight when we were climbing <laughs> It's like, and you're just like cruising along. Like, no, no big deal. You know, I'm, I'm on the eye out for bees.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you know, people that ride with me a lot, if they're not trained in it, then they, you know, I show them how to do it. But yeah, like my allergies so bad. Like that's my, my protocol is, is two.
1: Dang. Yeah. And for the folks who don't know, usually like it's one EpiPen you're carrying around. So two, yeah. that's yeah. pretty severe. Do they think that at some point, or is there anything they can do to, to calm that down?
0: there's venom treatments um that i started but then my insurance decided they weren't going to cover it
1: no stop
0: you cover really stupid things but you won't cover something that's life-saving but um i did i went through this like this test where they figure out what venom you're allergic to and they were like as long as you're not allergic to honeybees that's the one that is kind of resistant to the venom And somehow the test came back that I wasn't allergic to wasps when those have been my worst reaction and that I was allergic to honeybees. Um, But apparently the, the venom testing or the venom treatment is every week for five years and it's gnarly and it's only like maybe a 50% chance. So I still want to do it because 50% is better than none, None, Um, but uh, I haven't started it yet, but that's the plan.
1: Got it. Got it. Who did the uh, venom testing? There was it the insurance company's like, oh, oh, yeah, you're not allergic to these ones, but you're allergic to this one, so I'm not covered.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a an allergist, um, and wow. they have to actually like scratch you with all the venom, um, and you know, and see like if it, if it gives you a reaction. Um, but apparently, like the actual venom treatment sends you into like a mini shock state, and it's like I talked. I've only met one person who has an allergy as bad as mine who's actually done it. And they said it was really brutal. Wow. Dang. Yes, actually, Nick, I can eat honey. I was worried about that.
1: So it's just the venom in the bee sting that that would do it to you. Now, is the bee sting like just so unique on its own? Or are you allergic to other things? Like some people had said that uh, it's somewhat related to like maybe like some kind of one of the jellyfish stings or anything like that. Do you have to worry about other type of stings?
0: I have been stung by a jellyfish and it did give me a worse reaction than um, the other people I was with. And I have noticed since that reaction in 2019, I'm more sensitive to things like um, a tick will like everyone else will get a little teeny bump and I get a welt. Um, Mosquitoes seem to like, I get a a really big bump from it. Um, Yeah. So it does seem like I'm more sensitive to things, but some of those things don't even have venom. So maybe I'm just more sensitive to a lot of it now. Um, yeah,
1: your immune system's just like everybody. Let's start the inflama- inflammatory yeah. process. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so just, let's be on the hunt.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh! And then something crazy happened when after we got done writing. And uh, I know we can't share, we, I don't think we want to share the name of the writer, but I got to see you in action because you did. You have lived many lives. <laughs> and one of them is a medic. And um, I didn't know that at the time, but uh, there we went to a place called, I think it was called the Rail Yard. The Rail Yard. In Bentonville. Epic, epic, epic park. But this one writer had shorted the pro line.
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: had hit his head pretty hard in the little g out section and went into like a two-minute seizure and you were like first on the scene johnny on the spot like i'm a medic you're holding c-spine i need help i mean talk talk to us about everybody else was a bystander like what is happening and you jumped into action (laughs) what the heck (laughs) that was that was amazing but
0: so I, yes, I have lived many lives and in a past life, I was a park ranger and I was a park ranger in Yosemite um, and I was a wilderness first responder. I never thought I would go into education. I always thought I was going to work in the outdoor industry. Um, it just doesn't pay anything. And I got very tired of living in my truck. Um, but I was a wilderness first responder because I was leading trips and, um, you know, I, I worked in the back country. I was in like the north part of Yosemite. And before I was riding a lot, I was really into rock climbing and backpacking. So I was always places that were really mo- remote. This is before I knew I was allergic to bees, by the way. Um, and uh, I thought that, so. so I'm trained in how to um, do long-term care when you're, are far from a facility. So like I can reset a shoulder, like no one's business. I can, I can hold traction on a hip. Um, I can make a a splint out of a stick. Um, I can glue someone's tooth back in with, um, super glue, which really does work by the way. And you know, like I said before, I can duct tape, um, an (laughs) ACL, like I did mine. (laughs) Um, and, uh, it's, it's just come in so handy with mountain biking. Um, I can't tell you how many times because I'm, I would be racing too. I would see a terrible accident and I'd be the first one there. So, it's just happened enough times for me that um like I know that I can be calm in the face of of pressure and I think that's just kind of the person I am too. Like for me, um obstacles are a gas pedal. They're not um, the breaks. So if I I see things that maybe would freak other people out or that would make them pause for me, I'm like, all in, like, that's like my zone. Um, so whether it's, you know, seeing someone who's seizing, um, or if it's, you know, writing a dissertation, um, and big deadlines, like for me, like those things, I'm like, bring it, it's on. Um, but yeah, that situation, uh, I, I, I saw that, you know, it was like, as soon as I saw him crash, um, you know, I, I always kind of have an eye of like, okay, are you getting up? And he wasn't getting up. And I realized he was seizing and, um, he was on his side. So I knew that, um, he needed to stay there until he was done seizing and we needed to hold traction and it was actually better that he was on his side. So he didn't like swallow his tongue. Um, he wasn't choking. Um, but I just needed to be able to stabilize him until he was done seizing. And I've actually been in contact with his dad. He's totally fine. Oh um, good.
1: That was freaking scary. Yeah.
0: And the medics were that did arrive were not in any rush to get him to the hospital, which was
1: that was really scary too.
0: Yeah, that was really <laughs> like, scary too. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, two minutes out with that type of thing, and then what seemed to be fine at first was like, what happened? Where am I? You know, simple questions that he was able to answer. And yeah. then he started regressing pretty quickly yeah. and asking the same questions over and over again and that was scary because i was thinking like oh my gosh is there like his level of is-
0: consciousness was continuously decreasing so yes. like we heidi is trained as a medic as well my girlfriend and she she told the medic she's like you know he's A O one you know he can't he he got to where he could only remember his name which is you know so you have like a rating scale of how you would rate you know that level of consciousness and, um, it wasn't until the medic like heard that, that was like, oh, okay, maybe we should, you know, hurry up a little bit, but even kind of it took him on, a long it. time to even get the, you know, the, the, the on him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they see enough of those that they're just like, that's ah, the routine crash, but this one yeah. seemed pretty not routine. <laughs>
0: it definitely seemed not routine and you know when he was it, it was a young person and, and he was you know when he was coming to and then they they went to strap the collar on him they didn't even like talk to him
1: I know and was i funny.
0: was still right there in his face so i'm like you know they are just replacing my hands that's all they're doing and he was yeah. able to like calm him down yeah. um but yeah he he was definitely pretty scared but it's come in so handy like i was at um oh gosh back in fontana we had i think it might have been the u.s championship a couple of years many years ago, not a couple, I'm not going to lie, but, uh, there was, um, I was the first on the scene to an accident and there was a guy who had landed and he was a huge dude. He had landed after a drop upside down and all the blood was rushing to his head. So he was starting to come to, but he was getting really combative and, um, because he couldn't come to, cause he was kind of laying downhill and I had to move him and had to, you know, get some help. And I, I it got to where I would always check in with medics when I would get to a race and be like, Hey, I'm here. So they would know there's a medic on the track too. Um, Cause I could get there quicker than, than they could having to go up. But there was um, the U S national championships a few years back where um, a buddy of mine had broken his ankle and he knew that I could tape it. So I taped his ankle and he won, he wants, uh, I think that was four cross. And every wow. now and then he'll do a post and he's like, it's because of Christine's tape job. And I, I popped in <laughs> two shoulders, if that i just i remember i was in the parking lot and like people come up they're like hey i hear you can pop my shoulder back in
1: <laughs> <laughs> i've got one more stage to go i don't want to yeah. i don't BNF no, this
0: is pre-enduro this is like four cross and downhill
1: dang dang christine that is that is crazy yeah i got to see you in action and like you said there are only two obstacles the gas pedal or the brakes and you were yeah, definitely
0: awesome. on the
1: gas pedal and you were on the gas pedal at kohler too because mm-hmm. we dropped into cease and desist and i was gonna film you guys with my had GoPro, my gopro on i was like all right roll and film i got christine the space teacher i got heidi and then poof where'd they go I, <laughs> there's a little bit of dust and i i can see you guys in the air up ahead of me and you guys kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller that
0: whole thing with my shock lock too
1: <laughs> i remember that that was gnarly that was so gnarly oh my gosh christine i can't believe we're already at an hour with the podcast it's been so awesome to catch up with you and to see you again and all the great things that you have going on is there anything on the podcast that we didn't get to share about your journey about the mountain bike industry mm-hmm. about you with uh, education
0: um, you know, I think there's a lot of intersections with mountain biking and education. And I was thinking that, you know, if anyone was interested in maybe making YouTube tutorials or channels and, um, the physics of mountain biking, I think that Ooh. would be really cool. And maybe Bentonville would be the spot for that. Um, oh,
1: like a scientific episode around the physics of mountain biking.
0: That would be very cool. There are oh. a lot of, um, scientist, um, ex racers that I think would be very into that. Um, and, you know, for women, we like to be able to analyze things and, you know, we are very analytical. We are, you know, by nature, the more intellectual species. Um, and, you know, we overthink, we think things a lot. We want to be able to understand all the steps of doing stuff. So, um, that's one thing that I always, brought with me to coaching and why I love coaching women because we need to hear things a little bit differently than men. And men, that doesn't mean we need to mansplain. So um, <laughs> there's nothing I hate more than a mansplain. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Yes. Yeah. Same, same. Even even as me as a dude, it's like, oh God, I'm getting a lecture here. here. Oh no. Um, Lisa is saying you're a rock star, Christine. Keep making that impact in people's lives.
0: Thank you, Lisa. We should meet up next time I'm in Bentonville because I definitely want to go back. (laughs)
1: Yes, yes. And then speaking of uh, for people to follow you when it comes to your mountain biking and to you as a professor, where is the best place that they can follow you?
0: So my Instagram, I was MTB mommy for a very long time, but um, I am now the space teacher on um, Instagram and Twitter. I don't go on Twitter as much anymore, but um, feel free to follow me. I had that, I had to have that private for a lot of years um, because I would have students that would stalk me, um, but it is now (laughs) not private. So I'm trying (laughs) to actually like make much more of a a social media presence than, than I could when I taught teenage boys
1: that's exciting that's exciting the space teacher on instagram go check out christine in there and then as far as things that women need if you're if you're talking to a woman who's looking at a mountain bike and and thinking that they want to get on but they're a little intimidated about the sport what would you tell them and what kind of bike or maybe what kind of bike company would you steer them Mm. to
0: I'm, I am a huge fan of live because like I said, they were the first and they're now the last, they are also entirely engineered and employed by women. So it is an entirely different bike. Unlike Juliana, that's just the points of contact. Live is entirely engineered from the tires to the bars by women for women. So that's the number one thing I would say. One thing I hear from women a lot, and it drives me crazy is they think that um, they have to find a bike that they can stand over. And that gets under my skin a bit because, um, you're not standing on the ground when you're riding. Mm. So that's, um, I think that's something that we need to, um, my dog is trying to get in the room. He might crawl on my lap.
1: Um,
0: he's not small. Um, but you know, I think just changing the narrative from like, you have to be able to, I don't know where that idea came from that you had to be able to stand over a bike. Um, you know, and I hear a lot of people tell women when they first get on bikes, like they need to lean back going into sections. So I think there's just such poor advice out there and it all really feeds into this fear narrative Mm -hmm. and you know, that fear narrative of like leaning back and react instead of being proactive and being in positions that are aggressive. Um, you know, there, there's so many ways that, that our speech and the way we frame situations on the bike perpetuates that fear. And, you know, then when you ride tense and fearful, you crash and then you're just more likely to, to do it again. So I think that, you know, if you're bringing someone into the sport, if you're bringing in, um, you know, your sister, or, you know, in my case, I'm bringing in the guys. That's how I, that was my litmus test for all of my boyfriends, by the way, Um, was if they could keep up with me on saying long trail. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, just, just being cautious of the words you use and the language you use and that how, how you frame things is going to have a direct impact on, um, on how people carry things on the trail and, uh, you know, not putting fear-based negative spins on things that don't need it because riding should be fun. It shouldn't be yeah. something we're scared of. And um it should be, you know, a stress relief and a way to get out into nature and, you know, to to shred. And for me, it's like I feel like such a badass on the bike that then being able to carry that with me in other aspects of my life. Um, you know, but I definitely had to overcome a lot of the um the fear-based mentality. So Yeah, that's definitely something I would say is, is to really think about mindset and, um, what mindset you bring to the bike, because that has the biggest influence of how you ride it.
1: God, I love that. That's a great answer. And you definitely are a badass on the bike and off the bike as well. And now uh, let's go to, if you are a kiddo elementary school age, you're a mountain biker, why should you pay attention to science or why should you pay attention to astronomy in, in class? And why, or why should you ask oh, to have more? Wow.
0: That is a great question. If you are a kiddo that is in elementary school, it is your generation that is going to be the next group of people going to the moon that are going to be colonizing the moon. It is going to be when you are in your 20s and your 30s and you could actually get to be a part of that whether you're an astronaut on the mission or you are one of the engineering engineers designing that. There's thousands and thousands of people that are behind these things. And you know, space is the most rapidly changing field. Um, you know, that's how we learn about climate modeling and defense systems. And it's so a part of our lives. Um, And it's so dynamic. There's so much more to learning about space than just moon phases and, you know, Galileo's moons. Um, There's just so many aspects of that. Um, You know, like I look at Planetary surfaces and see how they change, and um, you know what we can learn about our planet from those spaces. So it's not all about just learning about other worlds; it's about learning about us and how to take care of our world. Um, and there's just so many ways to get involved in it. Like I'm really interested in um, in kids doing citizen science, like using their phones to be able to pick up data that's usually space-based data. And being able to report back on that, like, there's just so many ways to, to get involved with science that are not what you traditionally think, like a microscope or a, you know, a textbook. Um, so, you know, there's, it's an exciting time because there's so many opportunities.
1: That is awesome. That is awesome. So kiddos, yes, that is it. Space, science, start early. You guys are the next generation. And if you're on the mountain bike, I mean, the geometry of everything, how it works, how you're looking at things, you can definitely apply that to what Christine's doing out there. Christine Hurst Bernhardt, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Really appreciated your time. I loved it. I loved it. And uh, folks there in the chat, uh, give her a follow at the space teacher on Instagram. And uh, we'll see you guys all out there. See you guys soon.
0: Thank you guys.
1: folks and that is a wrap on episode 114 with christine hurst bernhardt hope you really enjoyed that episode love talking to her about her life as a professional helping pave and carve the way for new women professionals up to this date with vixen racing and everything she experienced while she was there and also a cool preview into her new life as a professor in the world of science I absolutely love it and I hope you guys did too. Always want to leave you guys with a positive note. Remember in life as we go through it, you are never alone. We're all going through those ups and downs. And just remember when you do hit a down, it won't be here to stay, but you have the pedal power to get through it. It's all up to you. So when things are stacking up in that segment of your life, push in those chips, bet on yourself and all of your hard work will always pay off. Hope to see you guys back here on episode 115 or if you see me out on the trails, come up and say hi. I always love saying what's up to everybody and with that being said, keep on pushing. I'll see
0: you all at the top.